This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this episode, we hear from two big beasts of the world of news publishing. Simon Fox recently left Reach PLC, formerly Trinity Mirror, after seven years as CEO. Towards the end of his tenure, he drove the acquisition of Express newspapers, and the traditionally conservative Express titles now sit alongside the left-leaning Mirror newspapers under the Reach umbrella. Simon was well-placed to pull off this trick, as he's actually an accomplished amateur magician. Tim Weller founded business publisher Incisive in 1994 with the launch of Investment Week. He floated the business on the stock market in 2000 at a value of $73 million. But in 2006, Tim led a management buyer and took the business back private. Now he's non-executive director. He's also non-executive chairman of various businesses, including Trustpilot, TI Media, the children's digital platform Super Awesome, and ad tech firm Tremor. And it's Tim who gets the conversation started. Well, it's very good to see you again, Simon. Great to see you, Tim. Um, it's been a couple of months since you've left Reach. Uh, just How are you? What have you been up to? Well, thank you for asking. I mean, I loved my seven years at Reach. And I'm very proud of what we achieved over the last seven years. But it was a, a very a, a opportune moment to leave, uh, having had a fantastic half year. And the first thing I did was cycle from uh, Land's End to John O'Groats with my 15-year-old daughter, which was absolutely magnificent amazing. and really amazing. We were so lucky with the weather um, and uh, raised money for a really good cause. Uh, I am looking for my next challenge my next executive opportunity. Uh, but in the meanwhile, um, I've been working with a friend of mine called Julian Richer, who set mm-hmm. up Richer Sounds. Yeah. Uh, and we're working on an initiative around better business or ethical capitalism, uh, which we hope will launch at the CBI conference in the middle of November. Well, you're clearly fit. You look fantastic. Um, <laughs> now, today we're here to discuss how media companies sort of build value through M&A. Um, uh, with a particular emphasis on integration of assets, brands and people. Um, Obviously, uh, you did a tremendous job at Reach, created a lot of value for shareholders, and part of that programme was clearly driven through M&A. Would you just discuss what your acquisition strategy was when when you joined the business? Yes. So over the seven years, we did two big deals. The first in regional newspapers, which was the acquisition of Local World. And the second, more recently, was the acquisition of the Daily Express and Daily Star and OK from Richard Desmond. And the view I took and the strategy really was that this uh, is undoubtedly a challenging industry. Mm There is huge opportunity to grow digitally. But print is challenged. Mm -hmm. And my view and our strategy was the best way to protect our print business and to preserve it for as long as possible was to be bigger, to be more relevant, to have scale. And we wanted to have scale with ad agencies so we could offer them audiences of scale. Um, And we also wanted to make sure that our editorial content was as good as it could be. And the best way of doing that, we felt, was, again, by having Bigger teams Mm -hmm. sharing 
content to produce a better product for our readers. So greater greater power through increased distribution and then operational efficiencies through a, a more effective use of the content that you create across different brands. Yeah, that is yeah. exactly it. So with the Express acquisition, we have made savings or synergies as they're called of over 20 million pounds. And we did that without undermining, I believe, in any way, the quality of the products. In fact, I think we enhanced it. Mm-hmm. On top of that, as, as you say, we were able to sit in front of agencies and offer them audiences of young, old, male, female, uh, geographically based, you know, whatever part of the country combined, of course, with our regional titles uh, and therefore be at the top table uh, in front of, of really every advertiser, we would have a proposition for them. Can you take a step back? Because I think obviously buying Local World and then clearly the Express from two uh, businesses that were principally owned by, I suppose, a family-oriented a group. So Lord Iliff with Local World, I know he's obviously a, a joint shareholder, and then Richard Desmond. I mean, Desmond is outwardly known as a fairly a, a brusque character. I mean, talk, talk me through the negotiation maybe with him. I mean, how was that? Well, the first thing, it was very long. So it took um, over three years. And after, I don't know how long it was, quite a while, he um, he told me to fox off. Uh, we fell out rather spectacularly. I foxed off for a while. Um, and it, it took a while, quite a long while, for the renegotiations to then start again. And they took a, a number of different forms. There were different deal structures um, initially, uh, other people were involved and we were a minority. And at a certain point, I guess, uh, Richard got frustrated with the process and said, come on, let's just do a deal. And we shook hands on a deal. And in fairness to him, that was the deal. That, well, that was that's... it. That was the end. Um, we had a certain number of weeks to then deliver, which we did. And it was very straightforward, although it probably took uh, elapsed three years. So when, when obviously you had shaken hands on that deal, had you got formed in your mind that sort of integration plan? How far in advance do you think through the integration of these acquired businesses? Um, and how, what, what team members do you bring into that process? So we had a very tight team, probably uh, five or six of us mm-hmm. working on it. But we had extremely well-developed plans. We knew exactly what we wanted to do, both editorially mm-hmm. uh, and from a commercial and back office perspective. So we knew uh, that we wanted to have one single back office, that, that you would expect that, one set of finance systems, IT systems, which, of course, are complicated. It, it takes time. We knew editorially that we would keep the politics team separately, right-wing and left-wing papers remain supporting and Brexit-supporting papers. So politics would always be separate. But we realized that we could bring together what we call the back of the book. So that one sports journalism team uh, providing content for all titles, features, um, and whether that be gardening or fashion or movie reviews, we could do that in a single. So we went through every single content area and decided what could be shared and what needed to be brand specific. Right. And how long after the signing did you start in sort of pushing forward that plan? Was it immediate? Well, what happened on day one was that the competition authorities slapped a hold separate notice on us. So that's like buying a brand new car and the keys being snatched away 
on day one. Yeah. Very frustrating. And therefore, for four months, we were not able to do anything to the business. It had to be run at completely uh, arm's length basis. Indeed, it's a criminal offense mm -hmm. to direct the business in, in, in any meaningful way. Uh, so that was a difficult process. And during that four months, we went through an intense period of scrutiny by the CMA, the Competition Authority, and in parallel, Ofcom, who were very concerned about lack of media plurality. So would we change the politics of the acquired papers in any way? Would that lead to reduced choice for readers? I'm very pleased that they concluded after around four months that there was no issue. And so we got the clearance to, to proceed. We then got the keys and then really I'd say instantly we were able to spring into into action and, and implement our plans. And again, in implementing those plans, um, you were you were bringing a business that was sort of owned by a guy who was pretty famed for relatively ruthless cost cutting um, into sort of an enlarged group. I mean, how, what was the cultural gap between the two organisations, or was was there any? There was a significant cultural gap. I'm proud that at Reach we have a highly collaborative culture. Our, um, our editor-in-chief, Lloyd Embley, is probably our best commercial salesperson. Uh, he is always happy to meet advertisers and agencies. He, he understands the balance between commercial and editorial and how we need to work together. Um, and uh, and the, the whole culture, I would say, is one of collaboration. Now, that wasn't the case at the Express. It was much more hierarchical. People were perhaps more used to being told what to do rather than coming up with uh, uh, their own initiatives. And, um, and, and quite a daunting um, place. I mean, I, I spoke to the editorial floor on day one and, you know, it was a little threatening, uh, not very trusting. So it, it took a while, but not very long, for the cultural change to happen. And, and people, the teams that you combined, uh, did you bring sort of their managers into your management team or how, how did you work that through? So we were looking for the best of each. But on the other hand, it was an acquisition. And I think you have to be quite clear when it is an acquisition that it will be your team, who you know best, who, who you've worked with for many, many years, who are, who are going to, to, to get the top jobs. Uh, and that is what happened, although there are some amazing people in the Express and Star, particularly on the digital side, uh, who've, who've brought great learnings back to what was then Trinity Mirror. But the, you know, the editor-in-chief, the chief revenue officer, you know, all of those roles uh, were always going to go to the people that one knows best. Yeah. Tim, um, people tell me that you're now a twat. Is that right? <laughs> well, some may say I've always been one. But yes, my definition of being a twat is I work Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Ah, that's uh, what it I is. I try and organise my diary uh, so that I've at least got some flexibility um, uh, through the weekend. Uh, uh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Now, um, the incisive story, and it's 25 years old, I think, to this day, practically, is a really fascinating one. I wondered if it would be possible for you to summarize that story for us. Well, uh, 
the summary is I'm probably more famous for turning the unicorn into an acorn as opposed to the acorn into a unicorn. But in, in brief, uh, you're right, 25 years ago, literally this month, we um, formed Incisive Media through the launch of a newspaper for the wealth management industry in the UK, so Investment Week. Um, my background, is I've, I'd always been in B2B. So we started with 13 people. Um, of the 13, nine were journalists. The rest were sort of commercial commercial people. Um, and we competed in the early days against the FT and my previous company, Prata Reuters at Centel. Um, uh, we had an amazing first five years where we grew sort of exponentially, all organically. Um, and sort of on our approximate fifth anniversary, I acquired a private, small private equity owned business, um, uh, which had sort of the leading insurance assets in the UK. So we had built brands in retail investment, in health insurance, in pensions, uh, in sort of offshore investment. And we felt then there was a clear synergy of us trying to acquire an insurance business because it had a similar distribution uh, network. Having acquired that business, we floated the company on the main market of the London Exchange. Um, that was an amazing day because we returned 110 times our founding investors' money tax-free because we were one of the first EIA investments to get through. Um, and our timing wasn't perfect because, of course, we, we floated in the sense that we felt that the most efficient use of capital to use back then was equity because a lot of media companies were full, highly rated because of the dot-com you know, era. Uh, but of course, having floated in December 2000, that didn't last long. Uh, the market sort of crashed subsequent uh, to that made it quite tricky for us. But notwithstanding that, we spent six years as a public company. Um, we continued to grow the business organically, both through new entry into new markets and new geographies. But we then acquired businesses too. We spent 90 million buying a number of businesses as a public business. And then in 2006, I got slightly frustrated at the pace in which we could build through flexing our balance sheet. And again, looking at the switch of cost to capital, we felt if we could get sponsored by a private equity group to take us private, we could use our balance sheet to accelerate the growth of the company and scale the company so that we could come back to be sort of, you know, at least in the FTSE 250 in terms of, of, of value, which was important because our three, as a 300 million market cap business, we were just too small. So we went private, um, sponsored by Apex in, um, again, December 2006, so six years after we, we took the business public. And we had the most extraordinary 18 months, took the business from uh, 300 million of enterprise value, well beyond a billion, and acquired six or seven businesses in about eight months. Uh, unfortunately, we acquired those businesses principally through debt finance. Uh, we were a highly cash generative business. We had great fundamentals. The company had grown consistently over the last uh, 12 to 13 years. So, you know, we were, we were lent money, but at nine times lever when the crisis hit and we had a very difficult period where we had to restructure the company. There was a huge amount of market noise, um, which I had to manage the internal stakeholders of the business, my staff and our customers, because we were still a profitable business. But we, Jamie, my finance director and I spent a year restructuring the balance sheet. We ended up being owned by banks, having to sell the US asset off um, again to RBS and Apex. Um, we then managed the business for four years with with banks. And we had at the time 22 banks in the syndicate. It was it was a very tricky period. But it was during that period that we really accelerated the transition of the business. Um, beyond that, we were lucky enough to then, on our final, sort of get to the end of the story, in 2015, we were able to sell out 
um, some of the bank's interest to a special sits private equity group, Alchemy. And they were an amazing supporter of management's ambition for the company and vision to return value to our shareholders. Um, and they backed us on a sort of some of the parts value proposition where we had some assets that we were going to invest and grow in, uh, some assets that needed to be stabilized and run for cash, and then some assets that would be more valuable to others. Um, and two, just over two uh, years later, we um, basically sold the core pieces of Incisive to a number of different trade buyers. We returned 2.7 times the money to Alchemy, so they did very well from yes. it. And then I finally, with my CFO, bought the remaining piece of Incisive, which is rather ironic uh, in that it's the business that I started, Investment Week, but also the business that houses the brand I started my career on, which is computing. So we're now a small 23 million revenue business. We make good money. We have no outside shareholders. We got cash in bank. Um, but I will say it's it's done well since we acquired it, principally because I stepped back uh, from the company. I'm now non-exec director. Jonathan Whiteley is the CEO. There is a the direct correlation between me being out of the business and our success, I think. I'm sure that's not true. No, it's, it's a fantastic story. It's an incredible story. I mean, over that period, what have been, is there, is there been a, and we're talking about M&A today, mergers and acquisitions, is there one deal that stands out as being particularly good or, uh, or particularly bad in that period that, that you recall? I'm probably more famous for the deals we didn't do than the one we, ones we did um, as a public company. But um, M&A, sort of beyond our first five years of pure organic growth, formed very much part of our growth strategy. And what we were attempting to do through M&A was to strengthen the base of the business. I think the best acquisition I made was probably the most difficult. Um, and that was when we acquired the Risk Waters business from Peter Field. So the reason why this was, I think, financially my best deal, but strategically our best deal, because it actually gave us a global footprint. And it built us this big paid-for subscription engine, as well as then a decent conference engine. Um, it was our toughest uh, acquisition because we had to suspend our share price in the public markets. Um, ironically, we were the best performing share price through that period because the market crashed. Um, but we had to suspend our share price because we had to fix the value and for, the story had leaked that we were in discussion. Um, and we then spent um, uh, quite a few weeks. In fact, I think it stretched over since suspension, it stretched a couple of months where we had to hive up assets into a new co to ensure that we didn't take on that risk, but also then protected the tax position of the vendor. I remember Andy Bruff, who was our core shareholder at the time, uh, we needed, it was, a, it was a 35 million purchase. It wasn't by far and away the biggest I'd done, but we, we debt financed half of it and equity financed the other. And I needed four and a half million to get the sort of book bill covered. And Andy Bruff, who was our largest shareholder, um, wouldn't give us his allocation until he knew that the roadshow had finished. And he called me as I was walking up the stairs of my flat out of breath in London. And uh, I remember he said, right then, Tim, where are you? I said, well, Andy, it's pretty simple. You can either back me or sack me. I need your money. Wow. And we got the money. And it was the business we did at 50p placing. And then uh, two and a half years later, we um, sold the business to Apex at 193. So the investors who... who uh, backed us in that deal, did really well. But as a business, we did well from it too. That's a hell of a story. Mm. Goodness me. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. 
And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. So, I th- is it about eight out of ten um, mergers fail or uh, fail to deliver the expectations that the buyer has? Something less, some statistic mm. like that. Um, why, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think m- many or most do in fact disappoint? Well, I think that stat's probably spot on in my case. Um, I'm going to sort of not include the acquired businesses we did with a significant amount of leverage because actually they were still very good businesses. There are two examples I can think of which really didn't go our way. Um, uh, whilst the end markets that we were serving certainly were going our way and they were mainly driven around people. So probably the biggest mistake I made um, back in, I think it was 2004 five, was when we acquired an asset from a public company in the US. And that business had an extraordinary event proposition in the SEO market. So it was a business called Search Engine Strategies. But the diligence that we did probably didn't look at the strength of the underlying conference heads and the producers of those brands. And um, look, when we when we acquired that business, literally day two, the producer who had basically founded these businesses um, wanted a very, very large check for Incisive to stay. Um, and I just wasn't going to be blackmailed. And that individual, we let go. Now, unfortunately, he then launched a competing business. Whilst we had growth in the first two years with SES, our sort of event business, um, there's no question that uh, you know the senior producing team going had an impact. And it really taught me a lesson that actually people are fundamental to some of these branded businesses because it's their relationships that count. So, look, people can make or break a company, and we underestimated the strength of that particular individual. I also bought another business, a much, much smaller business in um, in Hong Kong, where the principal was very important to the business. And whilst we had an amazing three-year turn with that company, we made a mistake in not getting succession underneath him for when his earnout came along. And when his earnout finished, of course, he left. And those relationships went with him. Even though there was a non-compete, the relationship still went. And it was still difficult to gather the same form of momentum on that little tiny business than we had historically. That's really interesting. I mean, the, the people side of our business can't be underestimated. And certainly, you know, I mentioned earlier when we acquired the Express, um, it was really important to ensure that, that, that the culture changed, but also that we did retain most of the, the team, mm. uh, but that they changed their loyalty to us, their new owner. And that's why we changed our name, actually, to Reach, because we didn't feel it was right to have a single brand. So we used to be called Trinity Mirror, and that gave the mirror, I think, too much prominence in, within the, 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 the name of the company. So we, we wanted a bland name to really recognize that, that this was a new entity and, and everyone was equal. And, and, but how, how have you managed to, um, when you buy a company, ensure that they are loyal both to the company they used to work for, but also to the new shareholders and the new values and, and vision that the new shareholders have? Well, certainly, um, you know, when we were both a public company, but also then sponsored by Apex, I, 
I made it absolutely my single mission to meet and greet sort of every office of the companies that we acquired and to express where we come from, what our culture is, what our standards are, what we expect from people, but also, more importantly, I think the energy of the business. I mean, I hope, you know, as a leader of the business, I personified the energy and the forward momentum of the business. I mean, even our logo, which people find quite strange, is a sort of little bouncy frog. But the logo is not there to describe a ma- massively brilliant B2B company. It was to try and inf- sort of engender the spirit, the energy, the forward moving nature of the company. Uh, so when we acquired ALM, which was basically us acquiring a business of a similar size, literally the Monday following that acquisition, and it happened over the weekend, we had completely refaced the ALM New York offices with our branding, with our culture, with our um, logo. And that was fairly deliberate. Um, some people might think it's brutal, but it was deliberate because we wanted them to get that new sense of purpose of what the group vision was. Having said that, I will say that people's loyalty wasn't necessarily the company. People's loyalty was very much down the individual market they faced. So if you were a, a reporter on risk, you know, reporting on you know the derivatives market, that was your absolute area of passion. So we didn't want to get in the way of that, but we wanted to make sure that common values were served and a common, common vision and mission for the business was served. That was tough. Simon, we've touched on this slightly before, but just looking at sort of, you know, when you integrate two businesses with common teams, potentially commercial teams or content teams where you're, you're integrating them together and there is an overlap of roles. How, how do you go through that process of identifying the individual who, who stays with you? It's a really good question. Um, and when the roles are I- truly identical, which they often aren't, but if the roles are truly identical, then in an ideal world, you obviously want to find the best of the you know the best person for the job, mm. uh, and so we would definitely approach that with an open mind and and look at the competences and the performance of those two individuals. Ultimately, though, if you can't distinguish between the two, I think it is human nature that you will and I will choose the person that you know best, the person that you've worked with the longest, and that's just, uh, you know that is unfortunate, um, but. You know, certainly in the acquisitions we've done, I'm really pleased and proud that we have retained fantastic talent and we have identified fantastic talent. Um, you know, I don't want to name names particularly, but some of the digital talent at the Express was was outstanding. They had particular talent in search engine optimization, and we absolutely wanted that and wanted to keep that and nurture that. There are other much tougher decisions, and we did change the editors of the Daily Express and the Daily Star very, very quickly, uh, day one, actually. And we felt that that was necessary. In were they order... mirror people or were they Trinity mirror people uh, or were they new new people? No, they were Trinity mirror yeah. people. So the editor of the Daily Express, Gary Jones, was editor at the Sunday Mirror. Yeah. And politically, that was a tough call for him because uh, he was a, a card carrying uh, Labour Party member. Uh, but he has embraced, I think, absolutely brilliantly being the editor of the Daily Express. Have we and converted him yet? Is he, is he now a Tory? I, I <laughs> wouldn't like to say, but um, I think the, the paper reflects the views of the readers. And that is what an editor has to do. They have to understand what the readers want. Um, they have to try and guide and, and advise and inform the readers. But ultimately, you've got to 
you've got to reflect back to them the politics that they purchased the paper for. Um, and it was very important that we did make that change, those two changes, um, Johnny Clark, who's the editor of The Star, because without that, we couldn't really uh, influence the business. We couldn't bring in the, the ways of working, the culture, the innovation, the openness without changing the people at the top. And if, if there's a sort of menu of lessons learnt uh, from the deals that you've done, are, is, are there any highlights, the sort of core messages that you would like to give people from lessons learnt of deals you've done? I think the first is to be really clear, why are you doing the deal? And having your plan absolutely crystal clear before you have effected the deal, that sounds obvious, um, but uh, I would say that that is vital. Um, it, it, it can't always be that. When I was running HMV, we decided to diversify into live music and we made an acquisition of Mama Group, which was festivals and venues and artist management. I knew absolutely nothing about it. Uh, it was just a diversification. But the plans were really very ill-founded and they were, they were predicated on the fact that the team we were buying knew what they were doing uh, and would do a great job for us. And, and our plans were probably no more than a, a you know, half page of, of, uh, of paper, but it, but it worked out and they, and they did do a good job. Um, I guess it was high risk. It, it could have gone wrong. When you're buying a business that you know well, as we did with both uh, Local Worlds and the Daily Express or the Northern and Shell Group, uh, uh, you know, we knew what we were doing. We had very detailed plans and, um, and we had the right people in place to implement those plans. We both seem to have integrated businesses at pace. Have you ever left a business sort of as was? I heard Keith Weed speaking on one of these dog and bone podcasts and he was talking when you're uh, uh, running a company the size of Unilever and you're making acquisitions in India or Africa or whatever um, you, you, you presumably can't change everything and, and he said that the only things they changed initially anyway were uh, to impose the Unilever safety standards and the Unilever financial controls and everything else they left um, I haven't had the luxury really of being able to do do that. And so the deals that I've done have generally been very close to home. So they've been more consolidation uh, than these diversification where you're going into something new, a new territory, a new, you know, a new market. So when you buy a company, how do you make sure that the company that you're buying benefits from all the knowledge and systems that you, you are bringing? Good question. I think in the early days, it was tough because we probably, uh, as the young upstart, were acquiring businesses that had better systems than us. Um, so certainly I would say, I suggest this, the first and second acquisition, we were buying businesses that gave us a sort of leg up, uh, particularly with regard to more disciplined financial control, um, mainly because, frankly, they had been going for longer. Um, so we actually plugged into some of their systems as opposed to it being the other way around. But, um, you know, part of our focus with M&A was a di clear diversification, improvement of the overarching value of the business. So what, what we tried to do was to either buy businesses that were synergistic in the sense that they did uh, what we do in a new market, which would allow us then to apply our sort of more entrepreneurial thinking and our event model over it, or to acquire businesses that gave us new learnings, new expertise. 
Um, so, for example, this risk business I talked about gave us a global footprint, but a, a business that had a, um, a very significant subscription engine and a very significant conference delegate sales engine. So we quickly took that experience and worked out how we could build subscription uh, value across some of our branded assets, but also then build conference products in some of the end markets we serve. You know, we really weren't frightened uh, to fail fast. I mean, that was our mantra was that we, you know, we wanted to try and experiment, but make sure if you failed, you just do it fast and move on. It didn't matter um, because it was part of the approach. Um, I believe it's tradition on Dog and Bone to actually ask you whatever your uh, most embarrassing business moment is in your, your career. So what, what, what embarrassing moment can you think of? What embarrassing moment can I think of that I'm happy to share on this podcast? Um, so you may know that I am a magician. I'm a member of the Magic Circle. And one of the tricks that I like to do or have liked to do at my time at Reach is tearing and then restoring a newspaper. And I, as, I, as I do this, I tell a tale about um, the, the, how newspaper circulation has halved. So I rip the newspaper in two. And, 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 but then, with a great flourish at the end, I talk about that actually print has much greater longevity than people realize. And I restore the newspaper. At least that is what normally happens. That is what happens 99 out of 100 times. Uh, but on one occasion in front of an audience of esteemed advertisers, my torn newspaper did not restore and remained in 100 little pieces. Oh, no. And was very embarrassing. <laughs> but tell me about your most embarrassing moment, Tim. Oh, God, there's a, such a long list. <laughs> I'm <laughs> such sure. A, such a long sure. list. Career-ending list. Um... I think probably the one that still haunts me is the year after launching the business, we hired the Royal Albert Hall um, to do the Investment Week Fund Manager of the Year Awards. And in hiring the, the hall and bringing the industry together, I wanted to support a charity. And at the time, uh, we decided to support Sense. And we were unbelievably fortunate to uh, persuade uh, Princess Anne to come along to the event. Uh, which was a massive thing for a company that was a year old and had at the time 13 people. So the industry clearly thought we were bigger than we actually were. And I decided to have the stage in the middle of the hall. We built the floor in the hall, but we had a sort of boxing ring type stage in the middle of the hall. And my most embarrassing moment by far is um, there I was with mic in hand because I couldn't afford a proper presenter. I was presenting, had my back to Princess Anne with some dance music going, and I was clearly shaking my arms in, I thought, a rhythmic sort of style, which was bad enough to think of. At the same time, unbeknownst to me, the tombola had been pushed onto the floor, and Princess Anne was on her knees picking out the winning ticket from the tombola, at which point a very good friend of mine today, he wasn't then, a guy called Patrick Cooper, rushes to the stage and lifts up the tombola, to the obviously the cheering of of, of the industry, um, and uh, it's embarrassing, of course, because frankly, one, you should never have your back to a member of the royal family. Two, she was on her knees, which is horrific. But um, the competition uh, used that uh, for several years against me, and personally, sort of drove home the message whenever we had the royal Albert hall. And it's 
25 years this month since we started the business and it's still it still haunts me. So it's embarrassing and it sits there. I can see why. <laughs> oh, on that note, Simon, well, it's fantastic to see you again. Good luck on your search. Uh, thank you for your contribution, Dave. No, great to be with you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.